Have you ever ridden on a tandem bike? I haven't done it much, uh, but years ago, Burnett and I went and rented a tandem bike over in Victoria and spent a day riding. In fact, at that point, our son, our youngest son, who's now 25, was still a toddler. So that tells you just how long ago this was. And we actually rented one of those infant trailers that went on behind it. So we were like a tractor trailer rig with pedals, you know, it was this big, long thing. And which was a lot of fun. We had a great day, but we discovered that riding a tandem bike takes a little coordination. Everybody has to start together or it's just disaster. And so we finally figured out this kind of little counting system whenever we were at a stop sign and had to go again so that we would both not fall off this thing. Um, over, the, over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at this letter that the Apostle John wrote to a church whose family themselves had recently gone through disaster. And, and here's the verse we picked that up from. It comes out of 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John says, they, these people, we don't know exactly who they are, but he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's a lot of prepositions in there. Um, what he was saying is there, there were people that we thought were riding the same bike that we were riding. We, we thought that we were all pedaling together. But, but then suddenly, they broke off. There, there's been this disaster. There's been this tearing apart that has happened. And, and we don't know all of the details, but it appears that part of the crisis, based on the kinds of topics that John talks about in his letter, was that these people had begun to follow some teachers who had devalued Jesus. And we know there were some teachers living back in that time that had some uh, alternate ideas about who Jesus was. They claimed that Jesus was just a man like any man, and that the only thing that made him special was that he had been superpowered at some point by another being called the Christ. And it was that spiritual Christ who had helped Jesus, but that the Christ wasn't subject to the same kinds of human fleshly problems that the human Jesus was. And specifically, he wasn't subject to the death on the cross. And we've talked about this before, that it was coming out of that um, idea, that, that kind of teaching, that um, this devaluation of Jesus became a springboard for people to justify themselves living a dual life. Last week I taught you that term bifurcated, right? And so this bifurcated dual life that people were beginning to justify. And the result had been this broken fellowship within that church, this disaster when they all thought they were pedaling together to find out they weren't pedaling together, and even some self-doubt. Like, what if these guys were right? What if we've missed something? And so it's to these wounded and maybe even doubting believers that John writes. And he writes them with the authority of someone who had walked with Jesus and directly been with him, right? That's how he starts the letter. He says, what, what we have seen, what we've heard, what we've touched with our hands, we've looked on it with our eyes, this is what we're proclaiming to you. I was with Jesus, so let me straighten you out as to who he is. At the outset, I told you there were several themes that John weaves throughout this letter. And I've encouraged you each week to just read through the book. Just the whole book of 1 John takes about 10 minutes and to look for some of those themes, to follow the thread that I introduced on Sunday. 
And this morning, the thread that I would like to encourage you to look at and to follow as you read through 1 John this week is the thread of faith. And not just the importance of faith, but the importance of who we have faith in and why that is significant. There's lots of talk about faith. I think you'd find most people would say faith is important. The question is, faith in what? Who are we putting our faith in? What are we putting our faith in? And, and John, his answer is that we should have faith in, okay, you ready for the standard Sunday school answer? Jesus. Okay, that's the right answer for everything, right? But, but John would take it farther than that. As you read through the book of 1 John, if you look at the word Jesus, whenever he uses that name, you'll find that John wants to emphasize that it is Jesus Christ. Here's 1 John 1.3. He says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what's the big deal? with using Jesus' full name. I mean, depending on how much you've studied the Bible, the difference between Jesus and Jesus Christ may seem kind of inconsequential. Kind of like when you're filling out forms and they want you to put in your middle name or something. It's like, okay, fine, I gotta write the whole thing out. Is that, is that really all we're talking about? Well, for any Jew who was living in the ancient world, they knew better because Christ was an official designation. It was the Greek translation of an older title, Messiah. And the Messiah was the person who had been predicted and expected and longed for for generations by the nation of Israel. They didn't know who that Messiah would be, but they knew that when he came, he would be a great deliverer for them. The prophets of old had declared to a nation that was living in slavery that one day God would send to them a Messiah, a great divinely appointed and empowered rescuer for his people. And the only question was, who would this Messiah be and when would he arrive? Now, if you go back to the Gospel of John, all right, so John's account of his time with Jesus, kind of his biography of Jesus, uh, you'll find there's a story there about Jesus meeting this woman at a well. And as Jesus talks to this woman, they have this kind of puzzling conversation, at least puzzling to her. Because in the process of talking about wanting a drink of water, Jesus says that if she really understood who he was, okay, now she's got the jug for pulling water out of the well. Jesus doesn't have anything to get water out of the well. But Jesus says, if you really knew who you were talking to, you'd actually be asking me for a drink of water, the guy with no water jug. And, and I would give you a drink of water that would be living water, that, that would spring up eternally within you. And so the woman responds to this and she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And John helpfully includes he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. See, she says, yeah, yeah, this thing about rescue and, and, and life and all that, I, I know we're, we're waiting for Messiah. And uh, I don't understand a lot of what you're saying right now, but, but when Messiah comes, he's gonna make this all clear to you. And uh, John recounts Jesus responding with this. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. That one you've been looking for, that great deliverer that's been promised from of old, 
I'm not just Jesus, the guy without a jug here by the well. I am him. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And when you get into John's letter, this letter of 1 John, you realize how important it was to him to drive home the point that Jesus is that long-prophesied rescuer sent by God the Father. In fact, every single time that John mentions Jesus in this letter, he ties it to his role as the redeeming son of God. Let me just take you through a little, little walk on this. 1-3, our fellowship is with the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. 1-7, the blood of Jesus, his son, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. 2-1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 2.22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 3.23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Okay, don't forget this idea that Jesus and the Christ, some were saying, are separate entities, and that the Christ spirit just kind of came on Jesus. And John keeps saying, no, it is Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh. The Christ has come in the flesh, not just an add-on. 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. The, the man Jesus was not just another guy. He says the man, Jesus, is the Son of God, which is the role of the Christ. 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 5.5, five, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is an interesting one. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, commentators have debated for a long time, what does this mean when he talks about Jesus came by the water and the blood? I think if, if I'm right about who John is arguing against, this makes the point because the idea of this separated being was that the Christ spirit did not come on Jesus until his baptism. Okay, so he's baptized and then, then this Christ spirit comes. And then prior to the resurrection, the Christ spirit is removed. John is going, no, no, no. No, the Christ was Jesus. And he was him when he was baptized. And he was him when he died. He came in both the water and the blood. He is one person all the way through. And then 520. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So why is that so important? Why is it so important that we never lose sight of who Jesus Christ is? Well, because it's only Jesus, the eternal son of God, who has the power to rescue people like you and me from our own selfish little agendas. Right? Last week I talked about this concept of the world, that one of the ways I think of the world is it is the mutinous kingdom of self. 
And the only one who can save me from my own little mutiny is the eternal Son of God. And not only rescue me, but, but he actually adopts us as God's sons and daughters. That's the song that Sarah and the worship team have been teaching us this month. We are who you say we are. We have been made the sons and daughters of God. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. These believers had faced rejection. They had gone through a disaster on their bike. People who had pulled away from them, and, and there had been conflict. People that they thought were respected spiritual leaders. But John reminds them that Jesus, too, faced rejection by those who were supposed to be spiritual leaders. In fact, I think that John's mind may be drifting back to some earlier words that he penned in his gospel. Let me take you back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John says, he, Jesus, was in the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You realize that? If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made a child of God. I saw an article recently that listed 25 young adults that are heirs to massive fortunes. And you could guess the names. There were names like Vanderbilt and Hilton, and Gates, and Bezos. And if one of those heirs were to show up and be recognized in town this afternoon, let's say, you, you go out to lunch after church, and you're, you're walking in the restaurant, and all of a sudden you looked over, and you recognized one of these, and you said, do you know who that is? That guy over there is Bill Gates' son. You know who's in the other booth? That, that's Jeff Bezos' daughter. Do you know how much they're worth? Isn't that one of the Vanderbilts walking over there? That would cause a stir, wouldn't it? Because you would recognize who these people are and what they stand to inherit, and it is impressive. It's pretty much the same thing that happens when people see you all, or as Pastor Lance would say, y'all, <laughs> walking out of church, right? People see you come out and go, whoa, do you realize who they are? Those are God's children. That doesn't happen, does it? And John says, don't worry about it. The Messiah came, and they didn't recognize him. But what we stand to inherit isn't what the world promotes as having it all. But then again, I know a lot of folks who have had it all and still seem to be missing a lot. John says, don't be shocked that People Magazine hasn't done a cover story on you. The Jewish paparazzi had their cameras locked and loaded and awaiting the Messiah, and yet they didn't recognize the king's only natural heir when he showed up. But whether the world knows whose kid you are or not, what really counts is that you know it. There's lots of talk and turmoil in our world about identity. How do I define myself? 
Who am I? Is it my nationality? Is that my identity? Is it my gender? Is it my sexual attractions? My favorite football team? I mean, who am I? And I think all of us go through life wanting to find the answer to that question. Who am I in the core of my being? Who have I been made to be? Who should I become? John has already talked about some of the ways that our world tries to give us identity. Remember back in 1 John 2.16, he says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He says, the ways I could try to define myself, I can try to define myself based on my desires. I can try to define myself based on my accomplishments. I can try to define myself based on my possessions. But he says, none of those things truly can define who I am. The only one who truly knows who I am is the one who created me. And he has offered me a chance to return to who he always meant for me to be, his loved child living in relationship with him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Do you want to know what your identity is? Your identity, your truest identity, is that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are God's child right now. But John balances that reality with another. And the other is that the best is yet to come. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You're a child of God. And even if the world doesn't recognize that as having much value in the here and now, neither they nor you nor I have any concept of what we stand to inherit. In fact, John and Paul both suggest that merely Seeing Jesus for who he really is will be a transformative experience. Right? He says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we'll see him as he is. We will, we will fully know him. And he says, that is going to change who you are. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, that's actually Revelation. Did I skip 1 Corinthians 13? I did. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the day is coming that I will meet Jesus face to face, and it's going to change everything about what I know of God, of myself, to know that I've been fully known and to fully know him. Okay, Revelation. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Someday, we will see him, and we will be changed. It was part of Jesus' prayer for his disciples. John 17, Jesus praying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
says, I want them to really see me because it's going to change them. We get a little taste of what that experience may be like from the account of Jesus' transfiguration. This is taken from Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Don't miss that. He took John with him and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. A bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Who was standing there in that moment? Who got this little glimpse, this little foretaste of who Jesus really is in his glory? It was John, the guy who's writing this letter. And so I take you back to the opening of his letter. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. John says, I've seen stuff. I've seen some amazing stuff. And is it any wonder that he goes on to say, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And any doubt that I ever had about that, John would say, it is gone because I have seen him. And with just as much confidence, he now says that someday, when we see him in all of his glory, see him for who he really is, it won't just be awe-inspiring. It will be personally transformative. We will see him in all of his purity, his love, his radiant majesty. We will see him in whom we've placed our faith, not just the great moral teaching rabbi. Lots of people say, oh, I think he was a great teacher. <laughs> no, someday you're going to see him. You're going to know that he was not just a great moral teacher. But Jesus Christ, God's own son, who was sent into the world to rescue us. Jesus Christ, who in love greater than we can comprehend, went to the cross for us. Jesus Christ, the one who is in possession of such life-giving power that death itself could not hold him. Jesus Christ, our rescuer, our friend, our advocate in heaven, the one who is with the Father from all eternity and yet who humbled himself to our level and chose to experience life in its hardship and its temptations as one of us and yet faced it without sin and without failure. John says someday we will see him. And when we do, we will be changed. You know, there have been a number of memorials these past few months. In fact, while I was on sabbatical, Pastor Lance and I were talking about how many memorial services he led in my absence and, uh, and did a wonderful job in helping people walk through loss. But I just want to say to some of you, Mo, Jim has seen him. Joan, Eldon has seen him. Grace, Sand, David has seen him. Don, Corey, your mom, Phyllis, has seen him. Pam, John has seen him. Don and Lori, your dad, Warren, 
has seen him. And they have been changed in ways that we can't begin to imagine because they have seen him. So how can you be sure that you will see him? When I think about him, and then I think about me, I recognize that there is a gap. And this isn't like a spark plug gap. I, I've got a, a little tool for gapping spark plugs, and it measures things in thousandths of an inch. That's not much of a gap. When we talk about the gap between who I am and who he is, it's a lot more than a thousandths of an inch. Y'all remember way back in 1974 when Evil Knievel attempted to jump the Snake River Canyon? At its narrowest point, my ad, and failed miserably. That's the kind of gap I'm talking about. I'm talking about a canyon, a grand canyon between who he is, the one in whom there is pure light and no darkness, and me, who often lives in shades of charcoal gray. So how can I be sure if a guy like me is ever going to get a chance to see someone like him. Here's what John says in chapter 3. He says, if our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. You know what God knows? God knows something greater than what I've done and the guilt of my heart. He knows what his son has done and he knows his own heart. I alluded to this a week or two ago, but it has just struck me that we talk about Jesus as our advocate, right? The one who has paid the penalty for us. It's not like Jesus got in the way of what God the Father wanted to do. It wasn't like God the Father said, oh man, really? You took care of that for them? Because I was going to just toast them. You know, we're going to be done with this thing once and for all. No, we're told that it was the Father who sent the Son, this was God's heart, was to rescue us. The Messiah was his idea. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so no, God is not going to allow sin to go unchecked into his presence. The one who is pure and holy is not going to let shades of gray enter his heaven but he's also a God who wants to redeem and to rescue. And through his son, he has made a way. All he asks is that we put our faith in him. So can it really be that simple? I mean, there must be something that I have to do. And John would say, absolutely. If you want to see Jesus, you need to keep his commands. And you're going, ha, I knew it. I knew it couldn't be that easy. There was a catch in there. I got to do something. So here it is, 1 John 3.23. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. To believe in his son. To believe in his son means that we give up attempting to jump the canyon on our little trike and we say, Jesus, can I ride with you? Because you're the only one I know that could actually close the gap between me and God. And he says, well, sure. 
And I'll tell you what, as long as you're going to jump onto the bike with me and let me steer and let me take the lead, we're going to be making some stops along the way. We're going to be loving some people. And, and one of the evidences that you actually are riding with me is that you're going to lean when I lean. You're going to pedal when I pedal. You're going to love when I love. And, and that's not what gets you on the bike. That, that's simply the evidence that, yeah, you're on for the ride. This is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. That word lives can be translated as abide. Again, back to this tandem bike. What does it take to ride a tandem bike in the number two seat? You got to be willing to go where the guy in the number one seat is going. If you think you're going to pedal your own direction, you're headed for disaster. It says you're being invited to go on for the ride. Abiding means that you lean when he leans, you pedal when he pedals, you stop where he stops. And if my heart starts to condemn me, sometimes it just means that I've started trying to ride my little trike again. But he says there's this other factor that's at work. It's God's spirit. It's the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the triune God is all involved in this. And I don't know exactly how you define this. He says, we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And I think those of us who come to faith in Christ would say, yes, something happened inside. I don't know if I can quantify the whole thing. I don't know if I can write out the formula, but I'm telling you, something changed in my soul. I became sensitized to things that I used to never give a second thought to. I found myself being moved to show compassion in places and to people that I used to be indifferent to or, or even held in disdain. I see broken people now as people to be cared for rather than just to be avoided. My conscience has become alive and I find myself convicted sometimes over things that I used to not care about. And I find that there is a, this kind of ongoing inner dialogue as I move through my life that I know God is there. And, and I keep talking to him and looking for his direction. And yes, something has changed inside of me. And John says, don't wave that off. That's God's spirit at work. You know, there's lots of talk these days about being spiritual, trying to connect with the divine, with the universe. John would say the point of connection is Jesus. And he's not just a great rabbi from long ago. John would say he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's own son, God's gift to the world, our rescuer. And the invitation is that we ride with him. You know, I want more of this. I want more of this for us as a church family that we would become people who are known in our community, known to each other as people who are peddling with Jesus, that we care about the things that he cares about, that, that we brush off the things that have nothing to do 
with his kingdom and his heart. That we are people who are eagerly looking to him to say, Lord, where do you want us to go? And so what is it that's around the turn for us? Because we're not just called to individual lives. We're called to a life together as his body. And so what is it that God's calling us to? And, and I don't have all the answers to that. But I think where it begins is it begins with prayer. While I was on sabbatical, one of the things that I was, was working on because I'm bad at it was this whole area of prayer. I'm a way better doer than prayer. True confessions. And I'm not making that up, okay? But I know it's important. I know that if I really want God's direction, I need to be talking to him. I need to be listening to him. We need to be listening to him. But it's not just going to stop with prayer. Prayer is going to help direct us. It's kind of like that countdown when Burnett and I were trying to get the tandem bike going. We, we had to talk to each other, but the point of talking to each other was we're going to start pedaling. We're going to go someplace. There's already a lot that's going on. You could tell by the announcement this morning. There's lots of things going on. But, but I want us to keep praying and say, Lord, where do you want us to go? Is there something new that you want to do with us as your people? I think the more we ride with Jesus, the more that we will be like him. There are, even this week, I've become aware of both some challenges and some opportunities that lie before us. But that doesn't scare me. I'm just saying, okay, Lord, you're taking us down maybe some new paths. What does that look like? Where do you want us to go? The more we ride with him, the more we're going to be like him. The more we see his purity, the more we'll desire to live in purity. The more we see his lived out and sacrificial love, the more that we're going to seek to live out sacrificial love ourselves. And someday, we're going to become more like him than we ever imagined. Because someday, we will see him as he is. And it will transform us. So I've been thinking, maybe instead of titling this series, The Walk, I should have called it The Ride. 